Welcome to this, the first episode of the Yarn Stories podcast. I hope you've listened to the introductory episode, but if you haven't, you can still jump right in on this one. My first guests are Rachel Price and Kate Burge from Spin Cycle Yarns, which is based in Bellingham, Washington. I first met the spinsters at Stitches West, where we were vending on opposite sides of a walkway, so I got to look into their booth for a few days and go over and pet their yarns during downtime. They recently had the opportunity to purchase the mill that had been milling their yarns, so their business is at a really exciting turning point. Anyhow, here's my conversation with the spinsters from Spin Cycle Yarns. Here I am with Rachel and Kate, the spinsters behind Spin Cycle Yarns. Hello! Hi! <laughs> Your yarns are made in the U.S. from U.S. wool. So why is that important to you? We're sitting in this small but privileged position of now that we've just bought our mill, so we now kind of own every part of the process for making our yarn, yeah. which is this like cool place to be because we can do basically whatever we want and then try to sell it, I guess. So... Um, <laughs> We just kind of shot for the moon. We decided that we wanted to only buy fiber from U.S. farms that's been processed in America because we can. You know what I mean? If that makes sense, it's like sometimes things aren't available to a producer to, you know, to do the way that they want it to be done. And and for us, there's a really cool mill that processes the exact kind of wool we want to use. And it's in America and it's American grown sheep. And then we can kind of avoid some the ickier practices that are popular in Australia yeah. and our yarn, although it does cross the United States a few times, <laughs> it doesn't um, cross any oceans to come to us. And, you know, that's pretty cool. It's like less fossil fuels. Yeah. I think it's all around like best practices, if that makes sense. It does. I think it's the same. It's the same sort of, you know, reason why like I try to eat local. It's a it's something that, you know, the people that it directly impacts and yeah. you know that you can see physically that there's not any abuses happening further down Mm -hmm. the supply chain like you know the people who own the sheep you know the way they're shearing the sheep it's Mm -hmm. a a transparency thing yeah yeah transparency was what we were aiming for we did start out the business not knowing as much as we know now and we were buying overseas merino Mm -hmm. and and then we just I think I had like an insomnia night and I was on my computer and looking at animal husbandry practices and found out about mulesing and found out about human labor abuses. And, and I just, we started to talk about that and we we're like, well, we have to make a bold move. We have to like stand up for our principles. And, mm-hmm. and it was, you know, easier said than done at first. It's a, it's a little hard to get access to, to the quantity of U.S. grown Merino at first because mm-hmm. we weren't used to buying in such bulk. Now we buy... Okay. We buy it by a half ton. Yeah, um, nice. <laughs> which was like a new quantity to get our heads around yeah. first. But um, yeah, it's been really great and really well received. That's awesome. So, I'm, I'm sure yeah. you get a, a buying discount when you buy a half ton versus like, you know, a couple yeah. of pounds. <laughs> We the mill will actually talk to us when we used to talk about buying like what did we what did we want to buy like the first time we ever found the the processing mill that we wanted to use we asked them if they would send us one bump one like thirty pound bump yeah and they just wouldn't return our call for like six months (laughs) you were not top on their priority list (laughs) yeah finally we got a hold of somebody because it's just like you just call there's not like a website yeah um and then I I was like all proud of myself it was a couple years ago. I was like, yeah, I think we used 800 pounds last year. And they were like, huh. 
I wonder if there's a way to get you that little. That's so funny. Cool. <laughs> you're like uh-huh. overwhelmed with this, you know, 800 pounds. You're like, yeah, so proud. And they're like, drop in the bucket. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. funny. You're like, that's not even a pat. That's less than a pallet. Yeah. <laughs> so now, now we've got our big girl pants on. We've got nice. our mill. We're buying it by the half ton like a boss. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm also just incredibly thrilled that we're living in this time when there's great sources like Tolt, for instance, Tolt mm-hmm. um, in Carnation, Washington, yeah. I think does a great job of educating people about the beauty of wool, mm-hmm. um, be it soft or be it toothy. Yeah. Um, there's also some really great designers like Andrea Rangel, who designs knits for hiking and sports and bicycling. And you know what I mean? People yeah. aren't just knitting like MCN, Merino, Cashmere, Nylon shawls. There's a lot of people who are interested in American wools. And, you know, our American wools that we use are very soft but there are you know they range they can get a little toothier and yeah. that wool really has its place you just have to kind of figure out how to use it correctly so no, i definitely agree so you're using mostly a blend of like corydale rambouillet and columbia mm-hmm. uh, that's the majority of your yarns are those three blended correct Correct. So why did you choose those particular breeds? We worked with our mill to come up with a micron count that Mm -hmm. would give us a springy, resilient yarn that's soft to the touch, that keeps its shape, that is heirloom quality. It's not going to basically like melt the first time you wet block it. Yeah. yeah. So, But not be too itchy. Yeah, not itchy. Not itchy. We want, you know, neck neck soft, definitely. Mm -hmm. It's got to pass the neck test for our customers. Um, Yes. So I feel like we really came up with the perfect blend and yeah, and it's available to be all American. So yay, yay in all fronts. Yeah. So you started the whole venture, dyeing your roving and then hand spinning and hand plying the finished yarns. Then you moved to having the yarn mill spun and plied, but you were still doing the hand dyeing and now you own the mill. So how's this progression changed the yarn itself? Not at all from the milling. Um, I'd say our yarn's getting better um, as, as it's been milled. And now that we are in the building with it being milled, <laughs> we can be slightly more nitpicky and controlling and yeah. troubleshooting. Um, mm-hmm. So I'd say it's getting better, but it's still the same. Dyed in the wool is still dyed in the wool. It's it's pretty funny. Rachel and I just bought a mill that we don't know how to even turn on any of the machines. <laughs> <laughs> We um, <laughs> know how to do it. Um, it that could change. This, will, <laughs> this absolutely is changing. We have um, the the manufacturer of the machinery coming out to hang out with us oh, for that's great. four days. So we're nice. going to spend four days learning the machines. Our mill, oh my gosh, we're so lucky. It came with the best employee. She worked for the old owners. And then she was like really happy to move up here. Not literally move her house, but, you know, move her, her, her workplace. Commute. Yeah. 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 Um, and she... She really likes the job. She's a really good knitter. She has an eye for yarn, a feel for yarn. She's really smart. She's mechanical. And she likes working here. So we're very, very lucky. Um, Her name's Anna. She's amazing. You didn't have to start over institutionally. Like you have the institutional knowledge coming through with the mill. Yeah. yeah, that's great. So Anna's here um, often four days a week milling. It's really loud. We built this like <laughs> humongous door to to be between us and Anna, you know, because the workroom is right on the other side of mm-hmm. the mill room because it's really loud. Uh, so it, it, <laughs> but I don't know. I feel like it's the sound of money. So I'm Truth. starting to like love the sound. I'm trying to make myself <laughs> love and like work with myself. So you're dying in the mill space? 
Yeah, everything's under one roof. The back room of the mill has a garage door that goes up so we can get tons of fresh air and light. um, Mm -hmm. And then that's where we die. It's all the same equipment that we've been using. So we have 15-gallon pots and we kettle dye the roving, same as always. Mm -hmm. And then we built this really cool drying room because drying is this huge part. Right. Every stage gets wet, like yeah. every stage of the yarn gets wet. So it's got to dry so many times before it ever leaves this place and goes to its new home. So we have this room. So we're not generally dehumidifying ourselves or humidifying ourselves. It all happens inside a little heated room. It's amazing. That's great. Um, yeah. And then we have offices, the workroom, and then the mill room. So it's um, 1,400 square feet mm-hmm. on the floor with two mezzanines totaling about 800 square feet. Nice. Sounds right. That sounds yeah. beautiful. <laughs> yeah. It's I, really great. You should you should come up and That would be awesome. Yeah. Uh, I just moved to a new apartment that's smaller and so we uh, we decided that it was important for me to have a studio space because there was no way that we could fit all of my weaving and knitting and that yeah. kind of thing. And just just having the dedicated space and having everything all in one place. I can't imagine what it was like working before, you know, like I did it, but um just having just, it all in a separate dedicated uh, space makes such us. a big difference. Same with us. We just have had this make-do mentality for a long time. And so it just, it's not that it made sense that our office was in one location, our mill was in another one, and our dye house was in another. It's just how it was. Mm -hmm. And ever since we moved everything into one spot, it's it's like, how would you go back? You'd never go back. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think Rachel and I both have that personality type where we don't really complain about stuff in the moment. But after we're done with something sort of awful or inefficient, (laughs) then we're like, finally give ourselves permission to be like, wow, that sucked. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I uh, same same with me. There was many times trying to like sew sew a garment that I'd have to you know stop in the middle because it was time to make dinner and I'd have to like clean it up. Otherwise, the cats would be all right on top of it. You know, where yeah. like the studio, I can just leave it on the giant table in the middle of the studio and come back yeah. to it the next day, and the whole thing just feels like away. it takes takes way less time. Yeah, uh-huh. Rachel and I have always had a studio. I think we worked together once without a studio, and then we got a studio the, basically our first month of being in business together because well, we didn't live together, for one, so having like a neutral place to meet in the middle was great. But mm-hmm. also, it's such a time suck to have to put your business away when between sessions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. terrible. So how did you two meet? Did the business bring you together? Were you already friends and decided to start the business? We met through a mutual friend when we both worked at the food co-op downtown. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm completely unemployable to do anything except make yarn or sell natural food, apparently. (laughs) Um, I think Rachel's got some more options than that, but (laughs) not for me. Uh, yeah, so we worked, we were slanging organic food together and, um, she knit and I knit, she spun and I spun. We both had a weird way of doing things that Mm -hmm. meshed really nicely. And we both have a similar work ethic just in so many ways. It just a 50, 50 partnership has been our natural evolution right from basically the beginning. Yeah. When we met, Kate had done a season of farmer's market selling hair hand spun. And at that time, our farmer's market only went like maybe eight eight months out of the year and then it rested over winter and it was spring and she was trying to decide if she was going to go back and feeling like she didn't have a ton of inventory and it's also exhausting to commit yourself as a solo person (laughs) to an every Saturday Mm -hmm. thing. I sold at a farmer's market way back in the day. Yeah. 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 Um, Yeah. And she just like, 
hit me up one day to see if I wanted to throw in some of my hand spun and join forces. And, um, and that's what we did. We didn't even have a website back then. We were like just farmer's market. Yeah, that's great. Were you both from the Washington, you know, Bellingham area? No, not at all. I am from Mississippi originally. Where in Mississippi? Yeah. Uh, Summit, Mississippi. Probably. I have no idea where that is. Yeah. Uh, yeah no. <laughs> <laughs> you would not have. Actually, it wasn't even Summit. Summit was the closest town. Nice. From a place called Johnson Station. Okay. But there's nothing there except a road called Johnson Station Road. <laughs> so where are you from, Kate? I am from southeastern Ohio, Appalachian girl. Nice. Um, yeah, my town's called Athens. And if you mm-hmm. ever look at an electoral map of Ohio, the coal country is red, and then there's yeah. one tiny blue dot, and that's where I'm from. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I love it there. We actually, um, our wholesale show, TNNA, is often in Ohio. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I love Rachel Ohio. and I get to go back and hang out with Pa on the farm. That's great. So um, <laughs> I love your branding. It's so unique and fantastic. <laughs> it has it has a deep love of wool, but a little bit of tattoo culture in there mm-hmm. and like an underlying thread of feminism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is that a conscious choice for you guys or is it just like who you are coming through? Yeah, that's absolutely just, just who we are. Yeah, yeah I thought so. <laughs> we have no experience in marketing. We, you know, everything's kind of trial and error. We have no like study groups. <laughs> um, no, it's the way we work in this industry. Right. We kind of like throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. a really good analogy. Yeah, I mean, we know some people in the industry that like for sure have like gone to seminars about how to make your Instagram look desirable and all that stuff Mm -hmm. but that's not us we're really into our punky upstart roots which are still absolutely everything that we you know we're still upstarts I would say um (laughs) always Yeah, we um, we spend a lot of time in vehicles or planes or spend a lot of time kind of cooped up, Rachel and I, traveling mm-hmm. to shows. And yeah. those times are always really good incubators for, like, weird new ideas. Like, our super bulky line of wool that yes. we make um, is called Knit Fast, Die Young, after our favorite MIA song, Live Fast, Die Young. <laughs> yes, Which great. we just, like, we're listening to on repeat, and we're like, what if that was our super bulky? Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Knit fast and then die young. <laughs> I, I love the sense of humor that runs through everything. You know, all your branding, all of your yarn names. It's Thank great. You. Well, we actually think that we're really funny. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad you do, too. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I think there's... There's a like nice subculture of puns in our industry, like you know people uh, naming their yarn stores like "Gosh, yarn it," you know, Um, stuff like that. I love it. It makes me happy. I come from a you know a very like Jewish family, and I have an uncle. He's that uncle that always has the most tortured nine levels deep puns that he (laughs) like builds up over like five minutes of story. Yeah, so there's there's a deep and abiding love of puns in my family. So you do a bunch of retail shows and mm-hmm. you both travel and do them together. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, is that, is that part of your business that you're really loving the interaction with like the end customer? Yeah, I love it. Oh my gosh. I absolutely love it. I would say, yeah. I mean, actually we've had a couple of our wholesale clients be like, Hey, kind of, is this okay for my business that you're showing up to stitches West? And I, 
Mm-hmm. I want to tell them, like, you want us to do this. You want us to yeah. do this because we get to interact with the customers. We get to, like, tell our story. We get to really have people interact mm-hmm. and connect. And it's amazing. And we meet designers. And so many beautiful patterns have come from these interactions. Yeah. And um, and the customers get to try on our samples. They'll try mm-hmm. on our, cl- you know, the sweaters off our backs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and we get to explain the process in a way that shops can't. I mean, yeah. Uh, most of our stockists are really pretty well educated in in our process and our history and what our yarn's about, but they can't they can't tell it like we can. Yeah, yeah. And well, and their uh, focus is different. Their focus is going to be you know selling yarn and project, whereas like your focus is just the yarn. So there's a lot more time you can spend on the details of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You guys have such a like clear style and clear, oh, I don't know, vision of what's going on and what you want your business to be that Thank, oh, thank you. you so much. Thanks. Yeah, I love I love doing those shows. Stitches is so much fun. Especially too. I mean, our kids are young, but when our kids were babies, we were so starved for adult interaction. Mm-hmm. And then like, you know how people are all talking about self-care these days? Yeah. Thank God. For me, with a small <laughs> child, knitting was self-care. Knitting yeah. was like a declaration of my independence as a human being. No, that like, makes sense. You're like, yeah. this is my time, my hand time. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Knitting like adult sweaters. Yeah. You know? um, I feel like Stitches West and like Knit Fit in Seattle and mm-hmm. all those kind of amazing shows where like all the yarn companies show up and the designers are there. I feel like that is just like an orgy of self-care. Like women yeah. will save up their change all year mm-hmm. to just be able to go and like treat themselves to beautiful things that they yeah. can take home and pet and plan projects and mm-hmm. make beautiful things for themselves and their loved ones. And I don't know. It's like we're really lucky to be in such a feel-good industry. It's mm-hmm. true. Well, and even just showing up to a you know, to a trade show like that or a, a retail show, I guess. And and being able to talk like your yarn geekness with people who actually get it and people who yeah. are just as enthusiastic as you are, that's self-care to me. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. We did a show the weekend after the election in liberal, liberal Seattle mm-hmm. um, after the presidential election. Yeah. And uh, man, everybody was stupefied and shell-shocked yeah. and hurt and confused and, yeah. and weeping, weeping oh, yeah. and together and comforting themselves and knitting themselves like metaphorical armor. Mm-hmm. Um, it was beautiful. You know, it was beautiful to see people come together and, you know, take care of themselves. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, and I feel like knitting is like the perfect metaphor for like uncertain times because yeah. you're just making yourself kind of somewhat of an emotional cocoon or making, you know, knitters are the most generous people on earth. You know, you'll knit someone something that took you like 40 hours, Mm -hmm. you know, and then it's just like such an easy, generous gift. Like here, thought of you for 40 hours while I knit you a, you know, DK weight sweater or whatever. Like it's so sweet. It's so generous. Great. It's a beautiful industry to be part of and tons and tons and tons of women. I mean, there's some great men involved as well, but yeah, um, primarily we're women. Yeah, in this industry. I love that. So I'm going to ask some some standard questions at the end of every interview to people like and see what people's different answers are. Um, right. So, okay, if you would classify any of your talents as a superpower, what would it be? Um, I think my multitasking is my superpower. Nice. Rachel may beg to differ. <laughs> I have some pretty intense like untreated ADD, but... <laughs> But it's paired with like a really good memory. So very few things just slide right through the cracks. Yeah. So I'm, I'm always doing like 10 things at once. Yeah. Um, and then getting it done at the end of the day, I would say. Nice. 
What about you, Rach? What would mine be? Probably my ability to sit in one chair for like eight hours <laughs> and get every computer thing that needs to get done done in just one go. Nice. What was that movie Unbreakable where the one guy was like the glass man whose bones were glass and then yeah. the other one never got sick? That's basically us about concentration. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It's good. Yeah. You got a balance between the two of you. Yeah. Together we're the perfect woman. Yeah. When you need somebody to be on top of all the things, you've got somebody <laughs> who can do that. When you need somebody to sit down and like super focus, you've got that too. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. Yeah. Uh, anything you guys want to plug? Do you have new yarn or something? Or do you want to like do a, I don't know, drawing or anything? Yeah. Why don't we um, give away a couple skeins of our newest yarn versus? We have this beautiful palette of 12 colors making a rainbow, of course. The thing that's cool about it is it's one strand of our hand-dyed fiber mm-hmm. applied against a, the same color of gray throughout the entire line. Yeah. And it's this really lofty, beautiful sweat. It's the most sweater-perfect yarn we've ever made. Um, nice. DK, it knits like a dream. It's got like nice kind of rustic, thick and thin, very, very soft, but still having enough tooth to it to keep its shape. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Rachel... And I, the first time we ever used it, we knit a sweater together, which is super goofy. Um, <laughs> I found a needle to meet my gauge, but she knit the sleeves and I knit the body of the Julia Farwell Clay's tambourine cardigan. Nice. And it's like, I don't know, that's got to be one of your favorite sweaters. Yeah, it's my go-to. So the the gray is the same blend, the Corydale Rambouillet Columbia? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And, but it's a natural gray. Yeah, and, that's beautiful. Yeah. And then we over or sorry, we dye a white. Um, yeah, so you end up with a really like subtle colored marled yarn. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, it's, that's great. It somehow still doesn't read pastelli. It's not pastelli. No, exactly. it doesn't. It, does it, it of, reads muted. Yeah, muted because exactly. of the gray. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we would love to do a giveaway with your listeners for two awesome. skeins. They can pick their colors off of our website, and we'll ship them out to them. That's great. And they yeah. could mix and match colors if they wanted to right. do like Oh, it. of course. Nice. One skein of each. That'd be cool. Yeah. And it's a beautiful DK weight, which makes it very versatile for accessories and sweaters. Very, very, yes. yes. <laughs> That's great. Thanks, guys. It was lovely uh-huh. to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. We're going to shift gears now and talk to Deb Robson, our fiber expert. Deb is the co-author of the Fleece and Fiber Sourcebook, and she teaches about fiber and spinning all over the world. We'll be talking specifically about the blend that Spin Cycle Yarns uses for their signature yarn line, Dyed in the Wool. Spin Cycle uses a blend of Columbia, Corydale, and Rambouillet wools, all grown in the U.S. This part can get a little technical, so I've put some resources in the show notes for you about micron counts, woolen versus worsted spun, and these specific breeds. to talk to you individually about the three different breeds and then also about what the combination of them together would give you. 
Right, yeah. Part of what's interesting about them is that the Corydale and the Columbia were developed in two different countries for similar reasons from the same core breeds. Oh. Okay, so... What's the core breed? You have Lincoln Mm -hmm. in the ram position, and you have Merino or Rambolet, which is a fine wool, as the ewe. Okay. Okay, so Corydale was the first crossbred stabilized breed developed. What does stabilized mean? Yeah, I was going to say, did that make sense? What that means is when you've got a breed, the offspring will be like the parents. Mm-hmm. You can predict that within certain parameters. In other words, some breeds are more consistent than others. But yeah. overall, if you've got a breed, you know, your lambs are going to come out looking like the adults. Mm-hmm. Before the Corydale was developed in New Zealand, people were crossbreeding. In other words, taking two different breeds and breeding them together to get desired results. However, mm-hmm. when you're crossbreeding, you can't predict. Oh, okay. Okay, you can be roughly estimating, but if you're crossbreeding a Lincoln and a Merino, for example, which is where the Corydale came from, you might get some lambs that are more Lincoln-like and some that are more Merino-like. Okay, so it's that kind of shot in the dark at that point. It is a shot in the dark at that point. They were doing it often to make sure that they were getting both good wool and meat yields. Oh, okay. The so flock. It was, they were trying for both. They were trying for both. Okay. So they took the Lincoln Rams and the Merino ewes and bred them together and then bred those offspring together. Okay, which stabilizes it because the, the babies wouldn't be a mixed breed. They would be right. directly from the Corydale or the, the Rambouillet and Lincoln. Um, Lincoln or- and Merino in that case. Yeah. Basically, after a number of generations and let's say, you know, roughly 50 years. Mm-hmm. You have a stable breeding population. You have predictable genetics. Got it. The Corydale was the first instance of that happening with the long wool, fine wool cross. Mm -hmm. And it took place between basically 1866 and 1882 in New Zealand. So we're talking 19th century. Yeah. Now, the Columbia was developed in the U.S. starting in 1912. So like roughly 50 years later. In that case, you took Lincoln Rams, same ram breed, and Rambouillet ewes, which was a fine wool breed that was well established here. Yeah. Rambouillet is the French Merino. Got it. Okay. Merinos are Spanish. Mm -hmm. Some of them went up to France, were developed into a a genetically distinct flock. Okay. And Um, that's Rambouillet. And they they became Rambouillets. Okay. Um, So they're both really fine wools. Rambouillet is a little bouncier. Yeah. There are also a gazillion different kinds of merino around the world. So, you know, when you start talking merino, it's like, okay, which ones? Okay. So are they genetically distinct populations in different places? That's interesting. They are. But everybody labels it merino. Does it have to meet like a specific micron count for that? Or Mm -hmm. do they just name it merino because it was merino back in the day? They're merinos because they are genetically merino. But some populations have been bred for more meat. Okay. Some have been bred to be extra fine wool. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of different Got subpopulations it. within the merino world. Okay, that makes sense. Um, okay, Rambouillets were brought to the U.S. and became really successful here in the Western Plains states in particular. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, they're pretty sturdy sheep, actually. Yeah. Then in about, well, it was 1912, people in the U.S. Department of Agriculture wanted to develop another range sheep. Range sheep are Western U.S. sheep. Okay. Okay. So so meant to be hardy on like, you know, arid plains and that sort of thing. Yes. And they're often run in really big flocks. Okay. So they need to be... Sociable. Well, sociable (laughs) and sturdy, you know. 
able, you know, able to lamb pretty easily and stuff like that. Yeah, so they, they wouldn't really, you know, be like in a fold and have help with lambing and that sort of thing. They would correct. need to be a little more self-sufficient. Correct. Okay. So they took Lincoln rams, mm-hmm. same thing we saw in the Corydale. Yep. And they took Rambolet ewes, which were the fine wool mm-hmm. merino equivalent that we had here, and bred them together and did the same. Okay, let's keep this going in this. Yeah, with the with the babies, like right. crossbreed the babies. Right. So what we have is two distinct breeding programs happening in different places coming together, like yes. creating almost the same thing. But like, so one yes. is Corydale and one's Columbia, but it's the same Lincoln Ram and, you know, fine wool, whether it's merino or Rambolet. So yes. like, yeah. Okay. So Interesting. So that's that's curious. And when you threw those two in there, I thought, I thought, oh, that's an interesting combination <laughs> um, because they are historically similar. Now, yeah. there may be a little Lester Longwell coming into the Corydale and there's some there's some debate about exactly what went into Corydale because it was okay. long enough ago. Yeah, that, it um, could, you know, one person who bred, you know, all the babies could have had something else in there. Yeah. Um, plus, sometimes when people are breeding sheep, they're a little secretive about what they're doing. That makes sense. Yeah. Especially I mean, if you're, you know, if you're trying to come up with something proprietary. In a way, yes. In a way, no. Because each breeder's genetic pool is going to be different and they're going to come up with something different. But anyway, things yeah. happen that way. People okay. people end up, you know, not exactly necessarily saying what they were doing. Yeah. Or not keeping records. Oh, yeah. Okay. You know, which is the mm-hmm. other piece of it. So... When you talk Corydale and you talk Columbia, you're talking similar history, similar genetics, different mm-hmm. locations. Yeah. You are talking mid-grade wools with micron counts between roughly 24 and 31. Okay. That's comfortable sweater wear. Mm-hmm. Um, the finer ends can be next to the skin. Yeah. And they, they have slightly different hands. In other words, the mm-hmm. Corydale, in my experience, is just very minimally silkier. Yeah. And the Columbia is minimally bouncier. Okay, that okay, makes sense. So they have they have just slightly different qualities, but they would certainly blend well together. Mm-hmm. You know, they would be real compatible. Yeah. The Rambouillet in there, uh, where I just said that the Corydale and the Columbia were running, be say between twenty four and thirty one, mm-hmm. a Rambouillet is going to be running between eighteen and twenty four. So yeah, it is a fine wool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for people who aren't familiar with the the micron counts. Thank you. Um, <laughs> 18 and under is cashmere territory. Okay. So that 18 to 24 means these are quite fine fibers. Mm-hmm. Um, the Rambouillet is going to be next to skin soft no yeah. matter what. Yeah. So when you blend your Corydale and your Columbia, mm-hmm. you end up with a really good um, multi-purpose wool that will have reasonable durability, which is a problem with the fine wools as they tend yeah. not to be durable. They are a little pilly and they get pilly if they're spun really, really well, meaning spun fine and with enough twist. Yeah, you can avoid that pilling issue. Yeah, but they simply aren't as durable. Okay. They're just, you know, sense. structurally, they're not as durable. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Columbia and Corydale are going to give you some bounce, some body, reasonable durability, functional next to skin qualities. But you throw the Rambouillet in. And it just bumps up the softness. You, it bumps up the softness. Yeah. Yes, it does. Uh, um, so does... Yeah. What's the staple length on Rambouillet? Does it does it pose an issue, and that the, that the Corydale and Columbia in there would also like make it easier to spin because it's a longer staple? Not necessarily. Okay. Rambouillets can have reasonable staple length. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, um, I've seen a beautiful Rambouillet fleece in person that was like. I was astonished at how long it was, and I was yeah. like, why would you ever spin merino, spin rambouillet? Yeah. It would be easier. Yeah. 
Well, and there are there are longer merinos too. Not yeah. so many of them, but yeah. um, the blending issues would come in at the mill, and they would probably select fleeces for. Oh, that makes sense for compatible staple length. Staple length yeah, yeah. Mo- for the most part, they're looking at micron counts, though. Yeah. Cool. Um, and almost all of this wool is going to be spun woolen. Yeah, it, they're all U.S. and uh, for spin cycle, they're all U.S. sheep, and they're spinning them. They own the mill now, so okay. That's it's really great. Yeah. Um, where staple length becomes critical is if you're spinning worsted. That makes sense. Yeah. Because yeah. combing everything is all like parallel. If yes. you're doing, starting with comb top and then spinning a worsted, then you've got staple lengths actually lined up next to each other. <laughs> right. And in the combing process, the short fibers are going to get be pulled lost. out. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So there went your Rambouillet. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Which, what's the point? Right, exactly. <laughs> At that yeah. juncture. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so basically what you're saying to sum it up is that it would give us, it would give a, a really bouncy, woolly feel, but with an extra boost of next to the skin softness. That's what I'm hearing here. That's, that's, that's great. What, that's, that's what this whole combination says to me. Having having worked with spin cycle yarns, I would agree. It's okay. very much that. Um it's wonderful. It's really, really great yarn. I look forward to encountering it. Thanks to Deb and to Rachel and Kate from SpinCycle for talking to me in this episode. Please do check out the show notes for the links to the yarns, books, and patterns discussed, pictures of these particular sheep breeds, and all sorts of technical wool information. Also, be sure to enter the drawing for two skeins of SpinCycle's newest yarn verses on the post for episode 101 at yarnstoriespodcast.com. I'd love to get your feedback on this first episode, so if you'd like to leave a comment or shoot me an email, that would be great. That email is Miriam. M-I-R-I-A-M at yarnstoriespodcast.com. And you can find that in the show notes as well. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it via social media or leave a five-star rating in iTunes. It really helps the podcast to grow and find more audience. I'm looking for sponsors as well. So if you have any suggestions or if you would like to sponsor the podcast, I'd appreciate an email about it. Thank you. This podcast was produced in Salt Lake City, Utah with production help from Mandy Moore and Sid Fallon. Music is by the ever-elusive Breakmaster Cylinder. I'll see you again in two weeks for an interview with Carol Feller about Nui Yarn. Mm-hmm.